right. Well, it's great to be back. And thank you so much, uh, Jim and Sharon, for a wonderful lunch. Thank you very much. That was fantastic. Had a chance to hang out with them. And uh, thank you so much for your hospitality. It's great to be here. How many of you have uh, remember the story of Rwanda with the genocide? Do you remember that? There were a couple movies made about that, like Hotel Rwanda and, and Sometimes in April was one of the movies. And talk about a challenging season for the country of Rwanda. It was 1994, April 6th, and there had been a controversy brewing between two tribal groups. One was the Hutu tribe. And they were uh, prominent, they were the dominant people group in the country. The country only had 7 million people. But then there was another group called the Tutsis. And so the Hutus, uh, and it's a long story about why, but the Belgians, when they had colonized Rwanda, made the Tutsis the ruling party. They actually measured people's, like, from their nose to the top of their head, and, they, and the taller, thinner Tutsis were thought to be more intelligent by the Belgians, and so they made the Tutsi tribe the leaders. Well, the Hutus, after a while, began to kind of multiply, and they weren't really happy with this arrangement, and so um, they started to really talk down the Tutsis. They began to call them cockroaches, and they would refer to their Tutsi neighbors and friends, former friends, as cockroaches, and they began to say, we've got to get rid of these cockroaches. They're infesting our land, and this is our land, not theirs. And so on April 6th of 1994, the presidential plane was shot down by a surface-to-air rocket in Kigali. And when the plane was shot down, he, by the way, was a Tutsi, of course, because they were the ruling party. Um, But to this day, it's still uncertain who shot the plane down. But it was enough to spark a conflict. And in the next 100 days, almost just less than one million people were killed. Can you imagine? Incredible bloodshed. Uh, So seven million people and one million of them were killed. So when you think about the country, how this was affected, um, everyone knew somebody. Imagine if, you know, one out of seven of us in this room were killed. We would all have some connection to somebody. And so it was interesting uh, what happened after that, which is really exciting, is that there I mean, it was a horrible genocide, and of course, there was a lot of international, um, I would say, uh, shame, because people like the United States of America and other countries said, oh, we're going to just let them work this out and refuse to get involved, which was disappointing, because the UN had some forces in country, but they weren't allowed to intervene. And so uh, the Western world just kind of had a hands-off approach. But what happened after the genocide which is really fascinating. This is one of my favorite parts about Rwanda, and it's something that Kimberly and I, as we began to learn about it, we were quite attracted to the country because of the fact that they have demonstrated forgiveness on a national scale. It's very interesting. Now, of course, they're humans, so <laughs> not everybody is participating well in this forgiveness initiative. But, but really, what they did is they said um, they would have these community councils, and they would literally bring together uh, offenders and victims and they would try to, to negotiate forgiveness and some reconciliation. And the entire country is actually um, pursuing forgiveness, which is an amazing um, story. In fact, what's the book you're reading right now, Kimberly? As We Forgive is actually a book written about the forgiveness initiative. It's, it's fascinating. But, you know, when you think about life uh, and we think about this life on earth, we know that this isn't everything that matters, right? We know that this life, we're just passing through. 
as the song says. Uh, this world is not our home. I'm just passing through. I believe that the life we should live for is the next life, eternity. And it's hard to do that, though, isn't it? It's hard to get our mind off of the here and now and to focus more on the then and there because it's harder to understand and to measure. But I really believe that that's what God's calling us to do is to, to really have a life of eternal impact, a life that will last beyond the grave. And so for some reason, God has, has had this theme kind of rolling around in my life for years, and I'm going to share a few stories about that because I really want to think about how can we live wherever God's called us, whether it's Rwanda or here or, or in China or wherever, how can he call us to make an eternal impact? I, I think there's a great scripture. I want to challenge you to turn over to First Peter with me. First Peter's my favorite book. I don't know why. Maybe because my name is Peter's, and, and I think I'm related somehow to Peter. I don't know, but, uh, but it's interesting. First Peter is just packed with this eternal perspective. And when you think deeply about death, it changes the way you live. Have you noticed that? I know that you've had a few funerals here in recent uh, months, maybe even one month. And uh, it's interesting, isn't it, when you come to this place and you ponder life and death and, and you think, wow, maybe my life is shorter than I imagined. Uh, and will I be ready to meet my maker? Will I be ready? Will I have lived a life that I'm, I can be... Uh, proud of in a, in a biblical way, um, that I live my life for God's glory. Um, I think that when you look at 1 Peter 4, turn over to chapter 4, I, I see some qualities of a person of eternal impact. And I just wanted to talk about these briefly tonight. And what I'll do is I'll intersperse some stories um, from my experience that kind of bring it to life, I think. But, but let's begin. Uh, look at 1 Peter chapter 4, and uh, beginning in verse... Seven. It says, the end of all things is near, therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. I think the first thing about a person, if you're taking notes, I've got seven little notes for you tonight. So this is the first one. A person of eternal impact is a person who's prayerful, marked by prayer, a person who prays a lot. And the Greek word here for end, it doesn't mean the chronological end, like it's, everything stops. It means that the result is achieved, the, the purpose is attained. It means that, in this case, I believe it means that Christ is coming back. His return is imminent. We believe his return could be any time. It could be tonight. And, and what do we say in Revelation? Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, right? I mean, we want the Lord to return. Uh, I remember when I was a child, it was funny, um, I went to my friend's house, and he had a three-wheeler. And uh, do you remember those three-wheeler ATVs? <laughs> those were very dangerous. I mean, four-wheelers are bad, but all of you, you youngins, you're, you think four-wheelers are bad. Imagine three wheels. So <laughs> when I was a child, uh, I grew up in, in, in California, and my friend, I was a city guy, but my friend had a, a, some land, and they had a three-wheeler, and, and his name was Stephen. I remember chatting with Stephen. It was Friday night. We were getting ready Saturday to have all day on the three-wheeler. And so I remember Friday night, we were both from Christian families and been around the church, and, and, and we started talking about heaven for some reason, and like how great heaven would be. And I said, yeah, it's going to be fun. I mean, I'm picturing just singing in a choir forever. You know, that's, that's what heaven will be, right, Mike? <laughs> that's, that's heaven. Um, but it was so funny, I remember saying this. I said, I'm kind of excited about heaven, but I hope that Jesus doesn't come back until at least Sunday. 
because we got a lot of fun planned tomorrow. <laughs> and it's funny, I look back now, and by the way, I've, I've crashed on the three-wheeler and like have a scar on my arm from running into a barbed wire fence. So I, I wish the Lord would have come back on Friday. But anyway, um, isn't it funny how silly it is? But if you think about it, you've heard people over the years say, well, I, I'm excited about the Lord coming back, but first I'd like to get married, or first I'd like to finish college, or you know, whatever it may be. And how ridiculous is that? If we could only begin to grasp the majesty of heaven and our Lord coming back to bring us to be with him forever. I mean, you know, nothing compares, obviously. Uh, and as a person of eternal impact, you're longing for that. You're communing with the Lord, saying, I'm ready. Listen to some of these other verses which relate to this. Romans 13 says, And do this, understanding the present, present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let's put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. That's written by somebody looking to an eternal reward. Uh, listen to James 5, 7, and 8. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient, stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. And I think about Revelation 22, as I already said. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Are we looking forward to that? When, when it comes to spiritual matters, we need to be prayerful to maintain that eternal outlook, that eternal perspective. Isn't it interesting who people who rarely pray suddenly become interested in prayer during a crisis? Have you noticed this? It's very interesting. You run into somebody who's experiencing some sort of trauma. And I actually saw this at the Pentagon on 9-11. I don't know if I told you this or not, but I was actually assigned as a chaplain at the Pentagon on 9-11. So uh, I was working there, interestingly, uh, responded to the, you know, the incident that you can see on the screen there, and, and spent the whole first night there working with survivors. And, and it was interesting. I, I remember one story was a guy who had stolen a medical frock from an ambulance, and he was trying to get in the building to find his wife because his wife had perished inside. He didn't know if she was dead or not at that point, but he was trying to get in. And so the police caught him and they brought him to me and said, hey, can you talk to him? Because he's obviously traumatized. And, and I remember the days following. It was so interesting. Maybe you remember here, Pastor Tim, where church was full, you know, the Sunday after that, right? People were coming and they were interested. I remember I used to do a prayer service at the Pentagon. Um, this is actually a special memorial prayer thing that we did with um, the heads, the back of the heads there, if you could see them, are people like Donald Rumsfeld, um, Newt Gingrich, Nancy Pelosi. I had to wash my hands after shaking some of these hands, I'm just saying. <laughs> but anyway, um, but these are people that were at this prayer service. All of a sudden, they were interested in praying. Interesting. And we did daily prayer services for, for every single day in the Pentagon Auditorium. And it was so funny because it was full, and then it would shrink and shrink, and shrink, and shrink, until there was just two of us, and I said, well, guess it's time to stop <laughs> doing the daily service, because we, we just forget so quickly. A few years ago, uh, I had a chance to go to Greece, and I want to show you this picture. This is, uh, these are the, the cliffs of Metora. They're, they're monasteries up on these really 
high cliffs, and they're very remote, hard to get to, of course, but it's a great place for prayer. And at the monastery, interestingly, here's what they do. What, what do you think these skulls are for? These are the former members of their order who died. And what they do is there's this practice, it's called uh, contemplatio mortis. And what it is, is it's, it's to reflect on death so that we live better, essentially. And so what they would do is they would take these skulls, well, they would actually take the bodies of the people in their order that died, they would bury them for about five years, and then they would exhume, exhume the skulls, and they would put them on the shelf. So, for example, you could say, ah, oh, there's Pastor Tim right there, and uh, oh, look, there's Chad. Man, he had bad teeth. Uh, but no, no, whatever, you know, you look at, and, and they would do this in a way that would really remind them of their own mortality. Isn't that interesting? But it, it forced them to, to try to live with more of an eternal perspective. I, I thought it was a, a great idea. I haven't tried to do it with anybody I know. But, uh, but can you imagine, you know, you, your perspective, how it would change if we're reminded. We are citizens of heaven, right? We're just sojourners here on earth. First John 3, 3 says, purify yourself and long for Christ's return. Watch, be clear-minded. The brevity of life, the shortness of life should remind us to, to live for something beyond ourselves. It's the great equalizer, honestly, because we all know that tomorrow we could die, and we have to be ready. Well, we want to be people of prayer, looking at life. I love, I love what John Calvin said. He said, if you really want to think with eternal perspective, he said, you look through uh, spectacles where one lens is Scripture and one lens is the Holy Spirit. And if you think about that, it's a beautiful way to think about it. If you put on those spectacles, Scripture and the Holy Spirit, you're going to look at life differently. It's not going to be uh, the way the world looks at life. You're going to look at it with an eternal perspective. So we want to be prayerful. The second thing we want to be is loving. A person of eternal impact is loving. Uh, verse 8, look at verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. This word here uh, for deeply, it's, it's fervent. It means to be stretched. It's sacrificial love. This is actually a quote from Proverbs. Proverbs ten twelve, where it says, love will cover a multitude of sins. And I love that, uh, that idea of, of covering sin. That's what's happened in Rwanda. They've decided to, even though you can't make it right, when, when someone killed my family member, I, I can't bring back the family member, but I can choose to forgive. And I can choose to cover over that sin because, by the way, as we know, unforgiveness probably affects us more than it affects them, right? Uh, it, it, it eats us up instead of affecting them. So we've experienced uh, that kind of forgiveness. And, and I've seen it happen before where people are able to say, I choose to forgive. And let me just say that. If there's someone in your life who really needs to be forgiven, I want to challenge you to, to try to do that, to pray for them. Jesus says, pray for our enemies, Pray for those who use us, who abuse us, to pray for them and try to forgive. It's so hard, I know, but I challenge you to think about it. Well, the third thing is a person of eternal impact is hospitable. And uh, 1 Peter 3, uh, look at verse 9, offer hospitality, I'm sorry, 4, and verse 9, offer hospitality to one another, and look at that last part, without complaint, without grumbling. Um, I think this is, this is written for me because I'm hospitable to a point, but I don't want to be hospitable. You know, I tend to grumble about it sometimes. So, <laughs> for example, 
What if you're being hospitable to somebody and they won't leave your house? I'm just, I'm just saying that can happen, right? And maybe you flash the lights on and off to give them a signal that <laughs> it's time to go. Um, what about if you're being hospitable to somebody and they take their, their uh, iced glass and it's dripping with condensation and they put it on your piece of furniture directly on the wood and you're sitting there thinking, I really want to put a coaster under there, but I, would that be rude, you know? Um, what if it's really snowy and, and, and it's, it's already, you know, the snow's starting to melt and it's really mushy and slushy and they, and they come in your house on your carpet with their slushy feet and just walk all over. I mean, these are the kind of things that, that if you're hospitable, this will happen, right? And it's interesting because I love what, what Peter says there. He says, be hospitable without complaining about it, without grumbling about it. In Peter's day, you think about it, um, churches met in houses. That's how they did it. I was talking to Andrew about the Chinese, uh, his Chinese experience. And Chinese house churches, the, the, the most powerful networks of churches in China right now are called house churches. Some of them meet in buildings, even though they're called house churches. But many of them do meet in small groups and houses. And, and it's, it's hard work uh, to be hospitable. But if we're going to be people of eternal impact, we're going to be hospitable. Uh, that's what I love about, uh, one of the things about Hope Haven Rwanda I love is the way that we invite people in, and I've invited many of you today, so the invitation's still open. Uh, come see what we're doing and experience it, and we're hospitable. We make sure, you know, some people think that when you go on a missions trip, it should be very painful, like you should suffer. You know, if you're going to go serve the poor people, you need to live and suffer like them. I disagree with that philosophy. I think that if, if you go and you're so distracted about you know, your own personal well-being because it's going to kind of blow your mind to live in a, a hut with no water and no bed or toilet. Um, so we don't want to do that to you. So we make it as easy as we can for people who are Americans coming from here to say, I'm comfortable enough that I can focus on serving others. That's, that's more of my philosophy. So just in case you're wondering, it's very comfortable. Uh, you know, you have a private room, shower, all that kind of stuff. It's great. Hot water, very nice. Um, so th- we want to be hospitable so that we can focus on reaching out to others. That's what it's all about. Hebrews 13 says this, Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have entertained angels without being aware of it. Isn't, isn't that a great verse? Who knows your hospitality, what it will do. I don't know if there's any angels in this group. Who knows? But I can say that God works through our hospitality. He works through the way that we reach out to others. So we want to be hospitable. Also, I think we, uh, and I wanted to show you a picture of the kids. I mean, wouldn't you want to be hospitable to those kids? I mean, that, look at that. They're giving you a cup of porridge right now. They're reaching out there. You want one of these. And uh, I would say this. Uh, we also have American-style food, too. <laughs> so you don't have to eat just porridge and rice and beans and, and sorghum and other things that you're thinking, isn't that for cattle? They do actually eat sorghum in Rwanda, so, um, it, but we have, we try to be hospitable. Um, the next thing I wanted to say, verse, look at verse 10. The person of eternal impact is a servant, a servant. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, to use the gifts to serve others. What is a spiritual gift? Uh, I love what John MacArthur says. He says, it's a graciously given supernaturally designed ability granted to every believer by which the Holy Spirit ministers to the body of Christ. Do you believe God's given you gifts? He's given you spiritual gifts. And there are even spiritual gift inventories and assessments you can take to figure out what are my spiritual gifts. 
I know one of mine is teaching. I love teaching, as you can see. And uh, that's good because sometimes your gifts are validated by others. Sometimes they're not. Maybe you know a teacher, and no one else knows he's called to be a teacher, but he thinks he is. Have you ever met someone like that? That's awkward. You know? <laughs> uh, what, what, but what are the gifts? Um, what has God called you to do? I'll tell you this. We are the human hands and feet of God. That, that's the fact. And so he uses us to accomplish his work. And what is that going to look like? Um, I'll tell you a couple of things gifts are not to be used for. They're not to be used to exalt the gifted. They're to be used for the benefit of the church and the glory of God. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 says. To each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Uh, one of the neat things that we've got down there in uh, Rwanda is uh, this wall. And it's, it's a wall of gratitude. Um, the thank you word for in Kenya Rwandan is Murakozi. So this is our Murakozi wall. And it's essentially just a wall with stick figures, as you can see, of people who have served. And so we thought we want to teach our students, our families to be grateful. And so literally I can look on that list and I can see people that I know who have been a part of serving because they're taking their gifts and some of them might be teachers, medical professionals, builders. Let me see who else we've had. Uh, I'm trying to think of some of the people that I... Oh, a dentist were just down there, um, which I guess is in the medical category. But I'm just thinking of other gifts. Uh, a girl who's really good at photography. And these people come and they, they say, how can I serve? You know, I've got this gift. I don't want to use it to exalt myself. I want to use it to serve the church. How can I serve this community with my gift? And that leads me right into my next point, which is a person of eternal impact is a good steward. Look at the continuing in verse 10 there. It says, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. I love this idea of stewardship. This means that the stewardship is managing someone else's gifts. It's not about this person um, and their gifts. Uh, they don't own it. They just manage it. And it's a wonderful illustration. Uh, I remember when I worked in D.C., I, I learned about these White House stewards. It was kind of interesting. Um, these stewards were kind of managers of different things around the White House. And, and one of them, for example, would be like a wardrobe steward. And they would actually manage like clothing and things. And their job, they didn't own the outfits. They didn't own the clothes. But they were stewarding it. And it was actually a job. They were able to kind of manage it and to recommend different clothing choices to the president, things like that. And I thought, that's a cool picture of how we, we don't own our gifts. We don't hoard them. We say, God, how can I steward it? How can I use it for your kingdom? They're, they're to be used for the advancement of your kingdom. Think about the unique gifts that are around the world um, and that, are, that God has given us. Let me show you this picture here real quick. There we go. Um, I love this picture. This is a part of our team. Some of you asked uh, Jim and Sharon today, for example, were saying, well, we'd like to learn more about the specifics of the ministry. So I wanted to take just a few moments and introduce you to our senior team, our leadership team. Uh, if you look over there, well, you see me, of course. Um, and then next to me is uh, a, a man named Nate. He was the one I talked about this morning, who literally moved down there uh, about six years ago and started agricultural projects. This guy, oh my goodness, he's, I, I don't even understand half of what he's talking about because he's, he's like a permaculture kind of expert. And, and um, they're really good at growing stuff in Colorado, by the way, like pot 
And no, just kidding. <laughs> it is. A, <laughs> but seriously, there, there are some hydroponics. There's all this kind of stuff. I don't know. I know some of you are agricultural experts. I need your help. Pray for me, please, so I can understand this. But more than 150, so I've been told, different varieties of plants, crops, whatever, have been grown on our property. And it's a small place. It's, only, it's less than 10 acres. It's almost 10 acres. But Nate has tried to grow anything imaginable. So here's a cool story. Um, Nate, being an American farmer and knowing what he's doing down there, um, he's actually able to grow things and keep them very clean. So uh, the Marriott Hotel and two high-end restaurants in Kigali, the capital city, they only want our produce because they can kind of trust it. It's kind of like an American to an American exchange. You know what I mean? Like the, the manager of the Marriott says, hey, Nate, I trust your, your crops, your produce. And so we're able to, to do that. What's neat about it, so here's how it works. We have, it's a school, as you know, 529 students. The school requires fees, obviously. Now, most of the funding comes from the United States. I mean, that, that's part of what we do as I, I'm a representative. I'm always out kind of arranging funding for the school. But here's the neat thing. We want the parents. Have you noticed how much more engaged you are when you have to, like, buy into something you guys know this is a principle in, uh, in ministry and business and life. Um, and so we charge for tuition. You might say, well, how do you charge tuition to people who have nothing? Well, what we do is we give them an opportunity to be part of what we call earning and learning programs. So check this out. You can come, if you're a parent and you have one child in school, you can come and work half a day in our farm in our fields. And you work that half day a week pays for the tuition. Now, some people say, I need more money than half a day a week. And so we give them an opportunity to work. We have some that work full time. So there's a whole spectrum. Some people work half a day a week. And we have a lady named Esther, who's the manager of all those half a day a week people, which is kind of a challenge, as you can imagine, because they show up in the morning and she says, okay, today we're going to be hoeing that field. Or we're going to be... harvesting bananas over here, or whatever it is. That's her job is to manage that. We have another lady named Aline. Aline manages the crew of full-time mothers, usually mothers. Sadly, the men are kind of passive in a lot of places in the world, and this is another example where the mothers tend to work for their children's school. And so these mothers work, and they also earn money in addition to the tuition. Uh, but it's amazing, and they're very creative. Oh, my goodness. Um, I've seen them, uh, I mean, sometimes they're, they're hoeing barefoot, which is probably not very wise, but they maybe don't have shoes. Uh, they're, they're digging with their hands a lot or rudimentary tools. And so they're, they're really, uh, they're learning, though, best practices. And that's what we're trying to teach them is how to take a plot of land, because many of them have a small plot of land, uh, very small, like a 10 by 10 piece of land. And we're trying to teach them things, Nate focuses on, like crop rotation because they don't really know that the soil gets depleted and that certain things will grow better in this season. So anyway, pray for us. Right now we're working with, a, there's a group called the World Food Bank, which is starting to partner with us now to figure out a way. We want to um, do like model plots. This was my idea of like demonstration plots. So I think, well, if everybody here almost has like a 10 by 10 little piece of land that they, a lot of times they don't own it, but they just live there. They're kind of like squatters or whatever, but they, they can farm it because the government will leave them alone or whatever, for whatever reason, they can access it. And so I said, wouldn't it be neat if we had like one for January, February, March, April, all the way through December and kind of modeled, okay, if you've got a plot and you're starting this month, 
this might be something to consider growing in your plot of land. So those are some of the ideas we have. I don't know. I'm not an expert at this stuff, but I'm just trying to figure out ways to help them and to really be sustainable. So Nate is the expert on that. The next lady over there is Priscilla. Priscilla is our family director. So she actually engages with the families to make sure, like for example, if a child doesn't come to school, because one of the problems that happens is that the parents are used to having the children do a lot of the chores. Imagine, like, if you go back maybe 100 years in this, this country, wasn't it kind of like that? You would have a lot of children because you had a lot of chores, and they could all pitch in, right? Well, in this case, it's still true. And so the, um, one of the things, you saw this morning the video of the well and these five-gallon jerry cans of water. One of the things the parents will do is they'll send their kids, they'll say, ah, education, some education, who needs that? You need to go carry water today. And so what Priscilla does is she'll follow up with the parents if she notices someone's not there for a day or two and say, hey, what's going on? Is your child sick? Are they, are they uh, everything okay? And sometimes she'll be able to kind of coax them to get their children involved. It's so hard if you think about subsistence living. If you're living just for that day, why would you want to go to school? You need water. You don't need school. You, you see what I'm saying? So it's really challenging. But, but she's always engaging with the family. She's a social worker of sorts, I guess you could say. She's working with the family, and she has her master's degree, actually, in psychology. And is really good about, hey, let me encourage you to think about education. One of the things she'll tell them is, hey, when you get old, don't you want your kids to take care of you? <laughs> and they'll say, that would be kind of nice. Well, let them go to school. That's a good start. You know what I mean? Uh, and she'll try to like talk to them in those ways. So that's Priscilla. The next one is Liz. Liz is the education director. So Liz is actually the principal of the school. She runs uh, what's going on day to day. And we have all kinds of classes. and teach. They teach science, math, English, French, Bible. Um, just thought of another one that I just lost. Uh, oh, social studies or history. Uh, and all these classes for each of these grades, 529 kids worth, um, we have amazing teachers. We have teachers from Rwanda. We have teachers from Uganda. Uganda has spoken English forever, so a lot of the English, um, the best teachers come from Uganda, which is our neighbor. So they'll come over the border and teach. And uh, she's doing a fantastic job. This literally started six years ago with a little, um, really under a tree. It wasn't even a building. They had a cattle uh, stall that they were using, which we still actually are using for some cooking stuff. But, um, but that's where they had a little a school area and then under a tree. And it was a funny story. This is one of the classic stories of our, our origins. So one day, the Department of Education showed up. And they said, what are you guys doing here? And uh, our founder was there, Susan. She's a great lady, woman of God. She's there. She says, we're doing school. And, of course, the education guy says, wait a minute. You're not, like, qualified to be a school. Uh, you don't have a school permit. And she said, yeah, that's true. We just started because we came, and they needed a school, and we just started classes. And this was after meeting, like, a few weeks under a tree. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, you guys got to stop having school. You need to go through all the proper registrations, which, of course, in Africa many times is corrupt, and there's all this, you know, paperwork and bureaucracy. And, and so um, she said, okay, I've got the perfect idea. Um, Come back tomorrow, I'm going to bring all the parents, and we're going to let you explain to them why they can't have school. Because you don't have a government school here, so it's either this school or no school. So come on back tomorrow, and you can tell them. And he was like, I'll see you next year. 
So he came back literally a year later. By then, we'd registered and everything was legitimate in the government's eyes. Um, but it was amazing. You got to love when God calls people to do stuff, sometimes they just do it. And uh, that's what happened. An amazing story. Anyway, so the next person down the row is Fred. Fred, I love Fred. Fred is our secondary expert because here's what happened. When you start school, we've literally been adding a grade every year. So remember how many years I said we've been going? Six years. What grade do we have? One through six. Well, guess what? Moving into secondary is a whole nother animal. So Fred is our secondary expert. We just hired him in January, and he's already beginning to prepare for seventh grade, which will come up next year. So it's exciting that we're, we're really thrilled about what that's going to look like, because that will turn into eventually vocational training and really practical stuff for these students. Some will go in academic direction, others of vocational training. That's how the school system works. I'd love to tell you more about that if you're interested, but I don't want to bore all of you guys with that. But seventh grade, Fred's coming up. And the last guy, Chaplain Shema. I love Chaplain Shema. So this guy was a missionary with Youth with a Mission. I'm not sure if you've heard of that missions group or not, but, but he was a missionary. And, uh, and then he came to our area a couple years ago and started a church. He just started a church plant. Now he's on our staff as a chaplain. And what he does, here's what it looks like. On Mondays and Fridays mornings, we have assembly. And uh, assembly, you saw this morning the kids reciting the Lord's Prayer. Did you hear that? That's kind of a part of their, their English and their their assembly uh, practices, but they get together. So now what we have is we have a chapel every week. Um, We also have Bible classes for every student every week. And a new thing that we're starting, uh, just started, which is so exciting, is we're actually teaching the the faculty now. This is something I started, I'm like, hey, we're a Christian school. We We can have, we can require our faculty to be Christian and we can require them to study together because what they weren't doing is they, they didn't have any way to sort of get together as a faculty. So now the faculty and staff every Thursday afternoon get together for prayer and Bible study, which is amazing. I love it. I love to see them. And you know, it's funny. Some of them just told me, I just got an email yesterday, and one of them said, I really didn't like this at first because it was like, I got to go to church while I'm at work or whatever. And, but they said, I'm beginning to really enjoy it and to just see how God's working in our community. So isn't that cool? It's exciting. So discipleship for me is one of the, the best parts of this. And Chaplain Shema is the guy who's leading that. So as I've gone through the list of the team there, you can see special gifts. Nate, great farming, not so great uh, secondary school teacher. You know, um, you look at Shema, amazing pastor, probably wouldn't know what to do with the family uh, dynamics and the social work aspect of while the kid's carrying water and they should be in school. You know, so it's just neat. God has brought the people with the gifts and the skills to be here. And that's the way that we should look at, at our skill, skill mix. God, what are you calling me to do? How have you shaped me for your service? You may have uh, be able to lead and worship well. That's definitely not my skill, so you don't, you don't want me doing that. Um, what about teaching? Maybe God is leading you to teach a class. Who knows exactly what it is? But God's grace has various forms, and he brings it together in a beautiful symphony for his glory, and it's a privilege to be a part of it. I want to be the guy who's like the guy sitting on the bench, and the Lord's got the game going on. He's the coach. <laughs> I want to be the guy who's tugging asleep saying, Coach, let me in the game. I want to get in. You know, I want to be a part of this. And I hope you are too because there's no greater adventure than walking by faith and being a part of what God's doing. Let's get in the game instead of just sitting on the bench and, and watching it happen. Uh, all right, let's look at number, verse 11. A person of eternal impact is also dependent upon God. 
Look at verse 11. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength that God provides. What is the essence of sin? Don't you think it's independence from God? It's pride. I mean, that's what Lucifer was proud before he was cast out of heaven. Uh, In a sense, he persuaded Adam and Eve to be proud and to say, we don't need to obey God's instructions. We can be independent. We can do what we want because we want to taste this fruit. I mean, that's where it started, right? It's the essence of, of sin. It's root, it's independence. It's how we are tempted to live every day independently of God. We've got to walk in dependence on him. And I love, I put a picture of the agriculture. Um, I love this, this lady. Oh my goodness, I can't get that clicker to work. There we go. <laughs> this lady is so funny. I joke around. She could, she could easily beat me up. I mean, she is... She is muscular because she's working. This is one of our full-time mothers who's working in the fields, and she is just amazing. But look at that joy on her face. Look at the joy and the expectation. She is dependent on God. She can do the best she can, and you guys know this in the agricultural industry or context you're in. You can't make it rain, and you can't control these elements, but, you know, God calls us to do the best we can to plant and to trust him, to depend on him, to lead in his timing. You know, when you think about it, uh, we need to walk in dependence every day. I love what Peter says here. He says, when we minister, we do it in absolute dependence on him. The words we speak, the services that we provide, it has to be of God. It's not of us. I hope that's a reminder for you to walk in dependence on him. The last thing I'd like to say tonight is that a person of eternal impact is doxological. That's a great word. (laughs) Doxa, what? What are you talking about? Doxological. It really just means, I mean, well, I'll read the verse first, verse 11. So that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. What does doxa mean? Doxa just comes from the Greek word for praise. And legain, which, which means to speak. Our life should speak volumes of praise to God. So it's interesting to think about, if someone were looking at you today, would they see you as speaking praise to God? Would they see your life as glorifying him, as, as exalting him? That, that's what it's all about. We should live in such a way that he gets the credit, he gets the glory. Ten times in this little book of 1 Peter, this is mentioned, this word glory. And it's throughout Scripture, of course. It's really our life purpose. And I love this picture of this guy leading worship uh, at our school, Job. He's a great man of God, worship leader. And you can just see the joy. What's neat about it is when you don't have much of your own strength or you don't have much that you can sort of claim, you, you kind of tend to credit God for more things. For example... If you didn't know where your next meal was coming from tomorrow morning or tomorrow at lunch, and then God provided, you would praise God. But see, we, we kind of miss that because we're so self-dependent. We don't really need to be God-dependent. And that's what I think uh, I saw for so many instances with the persecuted believers, is that they would say, I can't get out of this situation unless God delivers me. And then God would deliver them. And then they would have more boldness, and they would go even more boldly into an area where they knew they they would be at risk. It's almost like it's a muscle. 
of dependence, don't you think? I mean, it's like the more you trust God, the more you, you work up the muscles to do it. You know what I mean? It's like it becomes really, it, it's, it becomes easier as we, as we walk out and we, we live in dependence and for his glory alone. So I just want to challenge you tonight. Thanks for listening to me talk a little bit about Hope Abe Rwanda and what God's doing. And I want to challenge you to live your life for the glory of God, wherever he calls you. You're welcome, all of you, not all together, but all of you are welcome to, uh, to come down to Hope Haven, Rwanda. Um, but, but wherever he's calling you, will you live with a life of eternal impact? Will you be prayerful? Will you be living in a way that is loving and hospitable and, and depending on God, using the gifts, stewarding them well, and then ultimately doing it all for his glory? That's what he calls us to do. Let me pray for us tonight. God, I pray that you would help us to live in this way. Help us to have lives where we're focused on you and eternity, that we're not distracted by the things of this world. Lord God, I pray that you'd protect us from all the distractions that are around us, all of the emptiness, all of the false gods, the idols that distract us. Lord, remove all that from us, we pray, and give us your grace so that we can live with a life of eternal impact, a life that will matter beyond the grave. Lord, we don't have many days here. We know that. And so I pray that you would remind us of the brevity of our lives and that you would enable us to use every single minute, every single breath for you and for your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.